Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Religion and in Jewish Studies. My name is Avi Bernstein. I'm the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Brandeis, or Bali for short. Bali is a small liberal arts college for older adults embedded at Brandeis, a world-class research university in Waltham, Massachusetts. To find us on the web, go to brandeis.edu backslash B-O-L. L-I. And now I want to welcome Fred Beiser. Fred, welcome to the show, and congratulations on the publication of Hermann Cohen, an Intellectual Biography, with Oxford University Press in 2018. To begin with, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Fred? Okay. I'm the professor of philosophy at Syracuse University. I've been here nearly 19 years now and thinking of retiring soon. I got my BA and DPhil or PhD in Oxford. And after that, I went, Margaret Thatcher came to power in England. There were no jobs in philosophy. And after that, I went off to live in Berlin. And I did research there for many years. I lived basically in poverty for a while, but I was rescued by the Fritz Thyssen Stiftung. And so I had a stipend to write my first book, uh, The Fate of Reason. Since 19... 1984, I've had a series of jobs in the United States. I've taught at a total of about seven American universities so far. I was at, I taught at Harvard, at Yale, at Penn, at the University of Colorado, the University of Wisconsin, and then Indiana University. After I went to, I taught at these seven universities, I came and then I ultimately ended out in Syracuse. And I've been here now for about um, 18, as I say, 18 years. Uh, I've mainly published in <clears throat> on the history of German philosophy, the 18th and 19th centuries. And I, I have one book, however, I also work on the early English Enlightenment, and I publish one book on that, The Sovereignty of Reason. But on the whole, I have about 17 books, and they're on German philosophy in, this, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So I can say, uh, Professor Beiser, uh, as, as a reader of your books and as someone who knows uh, a little bit about the... Um, Readership that you know you've had a very distinguished career, and your books are uh, are widely read and appreciated. And um, I'm thrilled that you wrote uh, chose to write this book on Herman Cohen. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this particular book? Yes. Well, I had long had an interest in neo-Kantianism, and I've written a book on neo-Kantianism that appeared before the Cohen book. And on the basis of that, I was asked to come to 
there was a Cohen conference at uh, Princeton, and I was asked to give the keynote address there. And it was it was a conference particularly on Cohen, and I was asked to give the keynote address and. I was honored. I didn't really expect it. I didn't think I deserved it. But anyway, uh, I gave the talk there. And then I discovered from the various Cohen scholars there that there was no real biography on Cohen, which rather surprised me. I was told that one person had been thinking of writing a biography, but hadn't gotten very far on it. So I decided I would take up the biography of Cohen. I had actually already done a fair amount of work on him. And so it wasn't that difficult to write this book. Uh, it took altogether about 14, 16 months, but uh, it went fast, part, large, again, largely because I had worked on him, Cohen, before. I'm interested, the book will probably show you, I'm interested in Cohen, particularly as a philosopher and as a member, a leading member of the neo-Kantian movement in German 19th century philosophy. But he was a real sort of gap in the literature, a Bildungslücke, as the Germans would say, that there hadn't really been a biography of him, I found remarkable. And um, well, as I think you probably know, I mean, one of the reasons there is not a biography of Cohen is that a lot of the Cohen family archives were destroyed by the Nazis. So we don't know a lot about Cohen's personal life. And the book doesn't really cover his personal life. As I say, it's really about a, a, a philosopher who never really was anything but a philosopher. That has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have many sources on Cohen's life. We know more about Schiller's personal life than we know about Cohen's. Mm. And uh, it's a very sad and tragic fact. So my book is very much, therefore, in a very narrow sense, an intellectual biography. It, it treats Cohen as a man who lived through his work, and it goes through and proceeds seriatim through his intellectual development, that is trying to give an account of the works he gave and trying to put them in their intellectual context. So let's jump right into the biography then. Um, and I, I want to note that early in the book, you take the time to narrate the period in Cohen's life when uh, he spent uh, time at the Jewish Theological Seminary in Breslau. This was uh, in 1857, and he, he was a teenager uh, and managed to live there away from his family for uh, four full years. What did you discover about Cohen, the rabbinical student, and how did this period, in your view, affect the course of his career as a philosopher? Um, I think, to me, what was sort of most surprising about his time in the rabbinical se seminary was he was never really that he was never really orthodox or simple or naive about his faith and he always had a distance to it and a, a philosophical distance to it he wanted to investigate it um for its own sake and he he sort of picked up on the this was a atmosphere that was that permeated his his institution the, the Wissenschaft des Judentums von Zunz, and he had 
very much agreed with this, the idea that you should examine religion for its own sake, you should understand it scientifically and and not have a simple mind except belief just as it came to you. And so he, I think what came of the experience in the seminar, there was this controversy, I describe it a bit in the book, about how, uh, about the, the the orthodoxy of the head of the institute, Frankel, and Cohen sort of entered. Who was part of this controversy, and he tried to sort of, tried to mediate between the, the <clears throat> disputing parties again, and the idea that there could be some rational solution to the things that were the, the, that were that concerned them. But he was all he kept. What sort of disconcerted him and what pushed him in the end out of the seminary was this fear that orthodoxy was going to be impinged, was going to be impressed upon him. He didn't want that. And so what in the end comes out of the seminar experience is that uh, he decides he's not going to be a rabbi. He decides he's going to be a philosopher. And he doesn't his parents remarkably didn't quarrel with that they accepted that although his father was a rabbi they they accepted that and 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 that's what came out of it it came what we get out of cohen at the end of his seminary experience is this decision to be a philosopher and that's pretty significant, of course. Mm. Um, one thing he also picks up at the seminary, I didn't state that in the book, but it became clear to me later on, that <clears throat> he decides, he, he learns about Spinoza, and, the, and he learns about Spinoza's uh, approach to the Bible and so on, and he already recognizes its significance. That fits in very well with Zunz's program of Wissenschaftliches Judentums. And he, he picks that up and, and it becomes part of him. And so already at an early age, we have a very liberal, uh, at the end of the seminar experience, we have a very liberal Herman Cohen and a rationalist Herman Cohen, I would say. And uh, that I think he pretty much remained for the end of his life. Paco, I have certain people who don't accept that view, but that was sort of my line throughout the book that Herman is Herman Cohen is as a rationalist from beginning to end. And right. So, yeah. Yes, and the, and uh, as you say, uh, his uh, mind goes towards philosophy, even as he's in uh, the rabbinical seminary. And he becomes uh, pretty quickly, a, according to your account, a uh, scholar who is part of the movement to return to Kant. And it, according to your account, in the 1870s, he really sets his mind on rescuing Kant by writing about what he calls Kant's theory of experience. Can you fill out that story for our listeners uh, a little bit? Why does he uh, adopt that focus and what is at stake for him in doing it? Okay. Uh, this, this is a pretty complicated story, but let me just sort of 
summarize the development of neo-Kantian philosophy up to about 1870. And the orthodox interpretation of Kant's up until that time was the, that was, was tried to understand Kant as a psychologist. And psychology was becoming the vogue in the 19th century. And like all times, you know, philosophers like to interpret a particular intellectual figure in terms of their own interests and, and fashions. Cohen be Kant became a psychologist for these people. And the idea was is that Kant was really trying to explain the inner workings of the mind. And this he was Kant was, as it were, a sort of natural scientist avant la lettre. He was a, a, a scientific psychologist and he was trying to understand the mind as a natural phenomenon. Well, Cohen didn't accept this. He reacted against it very much. And he thought that Kant's real project was not to understand the mind as an object in the world, but his, his concern was with the possibility of knowledge and understanding and what justifies claims to knowledge, what are, <clears throat> what propositions back them up and what, what, what evidence can be said for and against them. That's a very different kind of inquiry from doing a natural scientific investigation into any phenomenon. You want to understand what the truth value of a proposition is, then you're engaging in questions of logic. You're trying to understand the evidence pro and con for statements rather than the causes of a phenomenon. And Cohen believed that this was Kant's real concern was with the evidence pro and con for metaphysical statements, for statements about the, the, the world as a whole, about the inner nature of the soul, about the existence of God. And he wanted to know the evidence for these. He wasn't concerned with anything as a natural phenomenon. In other words, this is to say that Kant's interests were, according to Cohen, second order, that is, not, not first order, that about the world itself, but second order, that is, about the statements we make about the world. And Kant <clears throat> was particularly concerned with a class of very general a priori, that is, statements you would make about the world prior to any experience of it. So Cohen recenters Kant's scholarship so that it's investigating not natural scientific interests in the mind, but epistemological statements about the justification for our beliefs. He makes the critique of pure reason a transcendental, that is to say, a second order inquiry into the logic of our beliefs. And <clears throat> this was really a kind of reversal of what Kant's scholarship had been doing before him. In many ways, in this respect, Cohen is really in the forefront of modern analytic philosophy, which interprets Kant's concerns in the same way that Cohen did way back in the 1870s. Cohen is really their grandfather, but they don't acknowledge that because they know so little about him. But that's, that's really the case. He really shifted the interests in Kant's philosophy away from questions of science towards questions of logic, so to speak. Is this clear enough? Uh, very very uh, clear and, and interesting. And, and I want to return in a moment to this rubric of uh, the transcendental. Uh, part, 
partly because uh, Americans not acquainted with German philosophy or with Kant uh, are more apt to connect that to uh, the uh, tradition of Emerson uh, than they than they would uh, understand it in a uh, Kantian tradition. I'll come back to that in, in a moment. Um, before I do, though, I want to ask you uh, one of the few places in the book where you venture, venture to um, comment on Cohen, the personality, uh, and you explain, of course, as, as you alluded to earlier, that, that, that you really, in the main, don't have sources for Cohen, the personality. But nevertheless, one of the few places where you take that risk uh, is with regard to uh, the um, episode where he is venting himself with a... Uh, particular animus at a senior scholar. And you liken him to, uh, or you quote someone who likened uh, Cohen's uh, uh, vitriol to Theristes speaking evil of Agamemnon in Homer's Odyssey. I wanted to ask you about that because it's a particularly uh, human dimension showing through in what is otherwise a an intellectual biography. You find uh, Cohen, in fact, I think, furious uh, throughout his career at one or another figure. Uh, and I would um, refer, for example, to his work on Spinoza and Hegel. How do you account for Cohen's extreme passions as they erupt in his scholarship? Or do you even agree with that characterization? Uh, your characterization of him is, is what? I'm sorry, I didn't follow. Uh, re- really, uh, at times, uh, almost uh, angry um, at figures in uh, either colleagues or figures in the history of philosophy uh, maybe at a uh, a pitch that exceeds what one would ordinarily expect in scholarship. If you could comment on that. Right. Uh, I think the case of the Thersites one, he was venting, uh, he was speaking, that was someone, uh, he was venting against Kuno Fischer. Kuno Fischer was a very important uh, historian of philosophy, in his day, and he, Cohen, he was in many ways, partly, I guess, a kind of rival for Cohen. He <clears throat> knew of, he, Fisher was the opponent of Trendelenburg, who was Cohen's uh, teacher in Berlin. But I don't see the anger against Fisher as being for Trendelenburg's benefit. I think I can't really explain his outburst against Fisher. In fact, in the Fisher-Trendlenburg controversy, coincides more with Fisher than he ever does with Trendlenburg, his supervisor. I think it has to do with, and this is just a conjecture because there's no, not that much evidence for it, Fisher was a, a very eminent philosopher, but he was also a bit of an anti-Semite. And this did not would not have gone down well with Cohen. I think he suspected him of that, and I think he'd been told that it was gossip. He didn't like him for that reason. He was partly also he felt free to vent in the case of Fisher because 
his Langer, his predecessor in Marburg, had also vented against Fischer, and he felt that, well, he could do so too. It's hard to explain this, but there was, I think, a kind of uh, attitude towards Fischer's anti-Semitism. The same thing, whenever Cohen gets really angry, it's usually because, and this is a more a, a conjecture, but I think it's well-rounded, and it's because of anti-Semitism. And that came out, and curiously enough, in the case of Spinoza. And that's because Spinoza was be, being used by anti-Semites who were saying all these things that, you know, Judaism wasn't really a proper religion and so on. And they were saying this on the basis of evidence of, they found or professed to find in Spinoza's Tractatus Theologico Politicus. And Cohen, therefore, he sort of vented against Spinoza for, I think, sort of similar reasons. Uh, you know, there was also the very famous, he also had a controversy with two of his col two of his colleagues who once in an early day had very much helped him. And this was Lazarus uh, uh, and um, I'm trying to remember, I'm, I'm blocking the name. Yes, yeah, Steintal and uh, Lazarus. And he had a terrible quarrel with them. That wasn't, however, due to any anti-Semitism. And he sort of, the quarrel was, I think he expressed himself very passionately about his own political views, which he knew were opposed to their more liberal positions. But he regretted that terribly that he fell out with them. He never wanted that. And I think that was just a young man venting himself and not really counting to 10 before he did so. I, so I'm going to stick by my hypothesis that anti-Semitism is usually the source of Cohen, Cohen's pathos. Although in that case, the case of Steintal and Lazarus, it was really just... He had lost his, a bit of patience with them because he didn't. They weren't trying to understand him, and he had a very different standpoint to explain. But again, it was for him a source of terrible grief, and he never really got over that. He never had any such second thoughts about Fisher or Spinoza. So there you go. I don't know. That's that's maybe it. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit of the OK Boomer phenomenon. If you're familiar with that recent. Uh, trend the the younger generation simply losing patience with their elders. Yeah, I think that's what that was in the case of Les Otis and Steintal. Uh, now that leaves us with Hegel, who, and I don't know if you agree with this characterization, but um, in in Cohen can sometimes seem to be associated with everything that's wrong with moral philosophy, and and uh, to really raise his hackles beyond what one might expect. You mean Hegel doing Cohen's attitude towards Hegel and being associated in Cohen's writings with everything that's really wrong and an error in moral philosophy? Oh right, uh, I'm not sure how I would explain that one. I mean, he his views on Hegel are not fully clear to me. I think that he felt. With a case of Hegel, he did not distinguish between the normative and the natural, as Cohen would have him do. 
And that's what Cohen's own moral philosophy very much depends on that Kantian distinction. And Hegel, everything depends on his philosophy about overcoming that distinction. So that's where I see the quarrel with Hegel to be. Um, that's, I don't think he's, I don't know where he spoke that with much pathos, but maybe I mean, you're a, you know some sources I didn't focus upon enough. I'm not sure. Well, let's return to, to your marvelous book. And it, what, what you do focus on uh, is Kant's transcendental method as it's being uh, highlighted by Cohen in his scholarship. You uh, maintain that Cohen does not really explain uh, its nature and its importance until he publishes a book called Kant's Begründung der Ethik in 1877. Can you elaborate about uh, the importance of that moment? Uh, yeah, I don't. <clears throat> really, the the second book explains the transcendental method more explicitly and precisely than the first one does. You would think that he would have done that in the first book, but for, he really just doesn't. Uh, basically, the transcendental method means you... <clears throat> You consider the conditions of the possibility of experience, and that is to say, you begin from some what well, is taken to be some objective fact, and you ex <clears throat> analyze that fact, and you find the conditions of its possibility. And that's a very simplified version of what the transcendental method amounts to, but that's basically what Cohen explains for the first time explicitly in the, in the Begründung der Tiek of 1877. It hadn't been explained very much and very well by previous Kantians. So it's an important text, not only for that reason, but that's that's what's going on there. It's it's implicit in the first book, <clears throat> Kant's Theorie der Erfahrung, but it's only fully explicit in the 1877 textbook, Kant's Begründung der Ethik. That's about all I can sort of say about that. But he sticks with that account of the transcendental method, basically, um, throughout his career. And it, what, the science, what you begin with, he says, the sort of so the fact of experience, that the Tatsache der Erfahrung is this idea that <clears throat> science is a fact for Cohen. And then the, he wants to investigate the conditions for the possibility of that fact, that is, the conditions under which natural science is possible, what we what are central presuppositions, what principles does it involve, and are those principles in the end, can we accept them as valid? And he follows that up right through to you know his final years. He's doing this basically the same thing. But he begins with what he calls this fact of experience uh, and that, and then examines the conditions for its possibility. This, of course, is, has to be understood as a logical inquiry, investigating the tearing apart assumptions, examining what the things, particular things they assume, and then is, <clears throat> whether or not they're justified. But you're not examining any natural phenomena in this this kind of way. <clears throat> so I also want to focus us uh, and our listeners on. Uh, another moment in your book, 
when you also choose to raise up a particular text in a particular moment. This is 1883, uh, where you draw attention to Cohen's publication of uh, the, uh, Das Prinzip der Infinitesimal Methode und seine Geschichte. And as you note, uh, this little book, it's, it's, it's uh, hardly a, a monograph in size, uh, with this strange title, turns out to be, at least in Cohen's estimation, a, an entirely new beginning for his thinking. Yes. Is this so? Uh, and if yes, uh, why? Okay. Uh, I think it is an entirely new beginning. I think Cohen was right to call it that. Uh, certainly, if we consider his later works, he sort of develops the insights he developed there. But what, basically what's happening in that book is that Cohen, in, the, in his first book, The Consterior de Erfahrung of 1870, he had, he had accepted Kant's famous distinction between understanding and sensibility, between concepts and, and intuitions. And according to that dualism, it's one thing to think about experience, it's another thing to have sensations. <clears throat> and those are quite distinct faculties of the mind, according to Kant. In other words, what you get from experience, sensation, is something that cannot be fully comprehended or analyzed according to the intellect. What's given to sensation is primitive, simple, and unanalyzable. It's raw data, as it were, and the intellect can only record it and note it's there, but it can't analyze it, can't say anything more about it. But then in this book, he shows that, or at least tries to show, that the intuitions we have from sensibility are, after all, analyzable. They're analyzable in, term, in terms of infinitesimal units. You could break them down into the smallest possible components. You can analyze them and show, therefore, that they are in a way they're accessible to the intellect. And once you have said that, the dualism between the understanding and sensibility <clears throat> breaks down. That everything that is given in our world and in our experience is, in, is at least in principle intelligible. It could be analyzed properly into very minute units and you could understand every phenomenon by in terms of those units and the relationships between them. Once that happens, the dualism between intellect and sensibility breaks down. That's bringing us closer to rationalism, the rationalism of Leibniz, according to which sensations are just are <clears throat> analyzable in terms of units of the intellect too. In many ways, what Cohen is doing there is going back to the rationalist tradition of Leibniz. And he that was opposed to this earlier understanding sensibility dualism, which is a central dogmatic premise of Kant's philosophy. Hmm. Now, uh, we, we've been spending quite a bit of time on uh, Cohen, the exegete of Kant, uh, but I want to shift our attention for a moment to another dimension, a dimension that we referenced early on in our conversation, namely Cohen, the Jewish intellectual. 
Your book treats uh, this dimension as well. Uh, you go, in fact, uh, one of the outstanding features of your book is your choice to treat him as both a writer of uh, philosophical texts and scholarship, but also as a writer for Jewish audiences. When he did write or speak with a Jewish inflection, who was his audience, uh, if you can say anything uh, in particular about that, and what was he trying to say to them or get across to them? Uh, it's hard to say. The audience was, I think, the it was mainly a Jewish audience, but not entirely. There was a lot of interest in a lot of these religious concepts uh, amongst the German public generally in his day, and he was certainly trying to address address the wider German public, and in some occasions he did so very successfully. Um, <clears throat> and what he's, I think, he's, what Cohen is always trying to do in his Jewish writings is basically say, you know, the Jewish faith is not done for, it's not over with. That was the common view of a lot of Judaism amongst a lot of, amongst a lot of Christians. But it is still a vibrant living faith. It just has to be understood in the proper way. And he, he always pushed this line. And, uh, you know, he, if anyone represented it, fully. I think it was him. There were others who were doing that, of course, later on in the century. But Cohen was the first to sort of say, you know, Judaism is a living faith. It's rationally acceptable. And that was, of course, something others would disagree with. But he <clears throat> he agreed with a lot of the liberal Jews. He was very much in the liberal Jewish tradition, <clears throat> people like Geiger and and Philipson and so on. But then he he developed this, I think, in a far more sophisticated intellectual fashion. He used a lot of the recent philosophical terminology, concepts of his day. And so he was more, I think, a more convincing and sophisticated defender of the faith than, than anyone else. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more to be said about that, but I'll, that, I'm just leaving it there at its most basic. So uh, we, we've noted, uh, Professor Beiser, that your um, book per, uh, aspires to be a comprehensive intellectual biography. It's, it's part of it's filling a lacuna. And we've discussed so far uh, Cohen's th theory of knowledge or logic of science. We've discussed uh, his Jewish writings. Cohen was also, in your accounting, a political theorist uh, and specifically uh, a, an advocate of a kind of socialism. And you emphasize that his Einleitung mit kritischem Nachtrag is of great significance because it was a statement of what you call ethical socialism. Can you elaborate on that? Right. Um... I think to this day, Cohen is still regarded as the sort of founder of ethical socialism. And here the, the, the importance is, is, is the adjective ethical. And he's contrasting himself with the socialism of Marx and Engels, which was a kind of which was regarded as a historical socialism. 
it was the Marx and Engels socialism was based upon was based upon the idea of a historical dialectic that capitalism was going to <clears throat> collapse of its own inner coherence through the conflicts between wage labor and capitalism, and eventually the socialist state would come out of it. It was regarded as a scientific socialism because it was based upon the facts of history and not upon some kind of woolly uh, ethical theory. What Cohen's ethical socialism is based upon a kind of Kantian ethics, and it's not based upon any theory of history at all. Cohen was, I think, very, was very skeptical of the claims of the Marxists uh, <clears throat> that their view, that their socialism was founded on a scientific basis. That just by doing history, they were avoiding a lot of kind of woolly ethical theory. Uh, <clears throat> he thought this was a kind of pseudoscience. I think right, and I think history has brought him out there. And his socialism was based upon an ethics, but in particular a more plausible theory of ethics than anything that preceded, namely particularly Kant's ethics. And he felt that Kant's view, the, particularly the second version of Kant's famous uh, categorical imperative, the idea that you should treat humanity as an end in itself and never as a means, he felt that this was really a, basically a kind of uh, statement, a socialist statement, and that it had to be it had to be upheld. And this was the basis for his own socialism. You couldn't be to say that humanity was, had to be treated as an end in itself meant that you couldn't be exploiting people. You couldn't have a kind of working class who you could just use treat as a means to your ends of greater capital accumulation. And so <clears throat> Cohen's socialism was, as I said, it was an ethical socialism because it's based upon Kant's ethics. And that I find a more plausible basis of socialism than, than Marx's theory of history. Marx's theory of history hasn't been born now. I think Kant's ethics has its own problems, but it's certainly a better foundation for socialism than Marxism. Oh, excuse me. If I I can interject a question there. The few people who have paid attention to, uh, in the Anglo world, to Cohen, the political theorists, include uh, someone named Jacob Agus back in the 40s, who concluded his largely appreciative uh, commentary on Cohen with uh, alarmist comments about Cohen as a... uh, endorsement of an outsized ambition for the state and its role in society. Do you think uh, that there are uh, appropriate worries there uh, in terms of Cohen as a theorist of the socialist state? That's a good question. I, he did, he certainly did have, have a confidence in the powers of state. Um, I don't see that as anything totalitarian whatsoever. I mean, he's sort of a social democrat. He believes in the value of democracy. And uh, therefore, he's, he's, Cohen was, he still is, and it was recognized by the social democrats in the 1970s. He was a social democrat. And therefore, I see that is to say you regard the state 
as a means to ensure economic equality for all. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, you go and expropriate people and divide property equally, but it makes the idea is that the state should ensure that everyone at least has a, a way of, of making their living and equal op opportunity. They should at least have equality of opportunity. The German state after the war was sort of like that. That's the social democratic state. Uh, I, I wish they had it here. But anyway, I won't go into that anymore. Uh, that, and so I don't see that really as a danger. Uh, well, you really it, put your finger on it there with the question of property rights. Right. And I, I wonder if it, it's possible to point to uh, places in Cohen's ethical and political writings where he takes a stand on property rights uh, such that distributive justice could, could never dispossess people of, of those rights. I think he sees in everyone a right to property. There's a sense of right, the equality of opportunity and the right to obtain property, of actually forcibly redistributing property. I don't see any evidence for that anywhere in Cohen's writings. Maybe I missed something, but I don't know. There's nowhere in the in his ethics, in the systematic ethics, where he allows for something like that. I think that's a sort of gray area in Cohen's theory. Um, but I don't see him at all as a kind of precursor of any totalitarian view of the state. This so let me let me move us, uh, if if I may, um, uh, with on the heels of those very helpful comments, to his uh, construction of an independent system of philosophy, a, a move that you detect as a uh, in 1902 as a, a new period in his career. He was no longer primarily involved in interpreting or reconstructing Kant's system, but rather in erecting his own. What would you say is distinctive about Cohen's system beginning with the 1902 logic, and how successful was this system in his own eyes and in the eyes of his colleagues? Uh, that's a good question. And I, I think that Cohen's own efforts at system building, I'll be just quite blunt about it, were, were a failure. And they began with the reception of the logic. No one understood it at all. And that was including Paul Nottorp, who just was his closest uh, student and disciple, didn't understand what Cohen was getting on about. And a lot of his per, uh, Kantian contemporaries didn't understand it either. So it's sort of, the logic is a very strange, very difficult text. I think I've got the essential ideas down in the book, and I, this came after an awful lot of work on that book. But it's not a it's not a clear text. But it show it begin. It sounds like a, re, a kind of resurgence of Hegelian logic. You know, the concept uh, disgorges the entire world from itself, and you don't understand where this is coming from and how it could happen. I think one of this we know one of the steps toward that we've just been talking about. Obi was the, in the in the. Uh, and his principle of the infinitesimal, there he already is making a move against getting rid of the realm of independent sensibility. But he doesn't recount those steps very well in the logic. And his contemporaries didn't understand 
what was going on. I think it was there all along. It was uh, removing the Kantian sensibility, but only doing that in a kind of regulative respect. That is to say, assuming we could, if we proceeded in such a, we we must proceed in our inquiries as if that didn't exist. That is the independent, sensible world. But it's not to say that it doesn't exist. And they, a lot of the interpretations of the logic sort of assume it's a kind of constitutive validity. And it's really, that is to say, he's assuming as a metaphysical fact that reason creates the world. He's not making these kinds of statements. He's saying that reason could create the world. It ought to create the world. But he's not assuming that it actually does this. But it's been misread, I think. And but anyway, it's been a going back to his history, the system of philosophy. It was, I think, the ethics, the aesthetics wasn't read very much. The ethics was read much more. That was the most successful parts of the system. But it didn't wasn't really read very much as a system as a whole. And besides which, there was this supposedly it's supposed to be this fourth part of the system, his psychology, which he never did. So it was a kind as a system, it was a kind of failure, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to move us uh, now then, uh, having covered a lot of ground together, to uh, some uh, syn- synthetic uh, assessments of Cohen that uh, you reference or allude to at the end of the book. And, and I want to ask you to comment on those here. Uh, one of them, as you note, is uh, the est- estimation of the Zionists who, after the Holocaust, uh, see Cohen as, as rather a, uh, as, as in the Hebrew uh, or Israeli Hebrew word, uh, a friar, a, a kind of naive or innocent. Gershom Sholem, the famous historian of Jewish mysticism, himself a German Jew, famously attacked Hermann Cohen as engaged in a kind of unrequited love affair with German culture. What view do you make, uh, do you take on Sholem's charge after writing this book? Sholem's views come in the, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, uh, which Cohen did not have. He died in 1918. He didn't know the horrors to come, although he knew what the direction they would have taken. He was a, himself a participant in the anti-Semitism controversy of the 1870s. But in a way, although Shulam's views come with the benefit of hindsight, they are correct. And we can judge them with the benefit of hindsight as correct. And it's, I think they were, they were predicated on the idea that Germany would become even more civilized than it was in the 1890s or early 1900s. And it didn't become that. It became a kind of monstrosity. Um, I'm, I have to say this, I'm a bit of a yecky myself, but I, 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 I can understand what Cohen felt about his German roots and, uh, but it's something you have to be, this being a Yeki, being someone who has a love affair with things, being Jewish and a love affair with things, it's something you have to be aware of. I, I, it's, uh, Sholem is correct, unfortunately. 
I, I don't know what more to say about that. It's a good point, but I think it's terribly true. The, the book that um, in some ways would be a flashpoint for uh, the thesis that Cohen's work belongs to a benighted past would be the religion of reason out of the sources of Judaism, that posthumously published book uh, that is uh, still read today, even as most of Cohen's corpus languishes. Let's acknowledge that um, uh, this book is not uh, really included in your otherwise comprehensive assessment of the Cohen corpus. Why did you pass on the opportunity to write about Cohen's uh, uh, work? Um, and uh, would you consider writing about this work in the future? Why or why not? Well, first of all, I just want to say, uh, I did cover the the book in the final chapter. I probably didn't cover it to your satisfaction, though, and I can understand that. I treated the book basically as part of and I, a, a general post-Kantian project. And so I treat the philosophical claims that come in the very beginning of it. Where Cohen begins to examine the content of Jewish belief later on, which does, after all, cover most of the book. I didn't cover that. I didn't cover that simply because I didn't have any more space. And I just, uh, it would have been, that was a, that's a book in itself. Um, so a book that you might consider writing. I don't feel, I don't, I never have had a proper Jewish education. I don't feel competent to do that. And uh, so I don't think I would ever, I would ever do that. And I would, the many ways I would like to, I've worked on the whole book. I did the whole book. And I don't know it in the way in which a lot of my colleagues know it, and that's for sure. And again, I just left myself to the most important philosophical aspects of the book. I do would, however, I would. I felt that that was enough to justify my claim as to the importance of the book, namely, the, and the importance of the book philosophically is that it really understands Cohen in the light of Kantian philosophy. It understands him in the light of Lotz's logic, that is the logic of validity. And so that, and that's, that's a very interesting and important uh, form of logic that was known well in Cohen's day and has very important implications for religious belief. And basically the implication is that religious belief uh, you have to examine religion not in terms of whether or not God exists, but whether or not the idea of God is valid. Uh, validity, Geltung was the German word for this. And, <clears throat> and validity is not a claim about what exists. And Cohen knew this very well, and he's, that's why he's very, he throws this out almost from the beginning, and he's, he, it doesn't discuss in any detail because he thought it would be just a bore to most of his contemporaries who are very familiar with Lotz's logic. And so, but if this is true, the distinction between existence and validity holds, then we have to see religious belief in a totally different light. And we have to see it as making claims to validity for the ideas of things being true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to exist. And that, Thread shows a, 
sheds a completely new light, I think, on religious belief. And that's what Cohen was trying to do throughout his book and trying to understand most of Judaism in these terms. And so I think that's a very important move. It was made clearly by Cohen and in the in, <clears throat> in religion, the Judentums. And so I think it has all the importance that, that I say it has. But I agree. I have to accept that you know I didn't examine that book as much as as much as it deserves. It would require a, a very large, uh, more than a chapter. That's a that's that needs a, there needs to be a book about that book. Well, and, I I take but I take your um, uh, your assessment as as thrilling, really, as someone who's as immersed in. Uh, the tradition of uh, German idealism and, and critical philosophy as you, to see in Cohen's uh, understanding of theology uh, a moment in a tradition which is uh, on, important and ongoing. Um, would you say that uh, Cohen's, uh, this Lutz's distinction that Cohen adopts uh, between existence and validity belongs to that larger, uh, long tradition of proofs for the existence of God? And if so, uh, d- does it uh, continue to uh, be alive as a, as a, as a question today? It, you, you seem to imply that. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to put it in the tradition of the proof for the existence of God, because Cohen is clear that the existence of God is not the central issue. But we do want to prove it, put it in the series of rational attempts to prove the vali- that to to establish the validity of religion, it certainly belongs in that tradition. It's an idea that I think is still not un- because it's not understood very well. It's still insufficiently examined, and I think it still as valid today uh, as it ever was. Um, well, I, think, I think we can leave it right there, and I I, I hope that uh, uh, scholars who are coming up in the field of religion, philosophy, and Jewish studies. Uh, take encouragement from uh, your own vision of of Cohen and the and the tradition and the work still yet to be done. Fred Beiser, I want to thank you very much for uh, spending time with us today. Okay, thank you very much, Avi. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for your questions, which were very helpful and very illuminating. <laughs>